0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. LeadSA.co.za The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby.
1: Hello, Naked Scientist Chris Smith. Nice to talk to you again.
0: Likewise. Hello, Reedy. How are you? I'm
1: very, very well. Thank you. Very well. Um, You know, I'm looking forward to a question that is going to come through from a teacher who phoned us earlier uh, saying that uh, pupils in grade 12 and in grade 5 and 6, that would make them 12 and or 13, have a question for you. So she's going to call us sometime during the show and ask the question. Apparently, the whole class will be listening to your answer. So I'm looking forward Fantastic. to that. <laughs> Lovely. Terrific. Okay, you have a story about uh, schizophrenia, not only the rate of Schizophrenia, but uh, the, the information about the disease, what causes it, how to treat it. Tell me about it.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. Um, about 1% of the population has schizophrenia. People who have it suffer quite disabling auditory and other kinds of hallucinations and they then develop delusions in other words fixed false firmly held ideas to explain why they're having these hallucinations and it seems to run in families about 85 percent of people have some kind of uh, genetic underpinning to their disease But other than that, something of a black box, very difficult to explain why it happens and what the actual pathological process is that's causing it. Um, But now there might be some new light shed on this because a group of researchers in America, this is Fred Gage and his colleagues, he's at the Salk Institute, have got a paper in the journal Nature this week where they've done a really interesting study. They take skin cells from patients who have schizophrenia These are cells called fibroblasts, and they can use a genetic technique to turn those skin cells back into stem cells. And then with the appropriate culturing technique, they can make them turn back into brain cells again. And this means that you can then study brain cells as though they were in the brain in a Petri dish in a Mm. laboratory on the bench. And you can begin to ask questions like, well, what do these cells look like? How do they behave Chemically, are they the same as control cells and so on? So by making lines of cells like this from four patients with schizophrenia and control cells from healthy patients and comparing the two, they've come up with a number of interesting avenues. The schizophrenic cells don't connect to each other as much as healthy brain cells would do. They don't make as many synapses. They also don't send as many outgrowths called dendrites or neurites away from the growing cells as healthy cells do. They also have a number of different genetic differences. The scientists were able to compare the pattern of genes which are turned on in the schizophrenic cells compared with the normal ones, and 596 genes were showing different levels of activity, and previously only 25% of those genes had been known about as associated with schizophrenia. And probably more importantly, um, from a patient's perspective, they were able to treat these cells in the dish with some of the more common antipsychotic drugs that are used to treat schizophrenia and then ask, well, what difference does this make to the cells? Because we used to think of these drugs as just changing the levels of the chemicals that cells... Like to talk to each other with, Mm -hmm. but actually, they're having quite profound effects. And there's a, a very nice quote here from Kristen Brennan, who's the lead author on the study, and she says, These drugs are doing a lot more than we thought they were doing, but now, for the very first time, we have a model system that enables us to study how antipsychotic drugs work in live, genetically identical neurons from patients with known clinical outcomes, and we can start correlating pharmacological, in other words, how the drugs work type effects with the symptoms the patients have. So, in other words, now you've got a way of modeling a person's disease in mm. a dish and then testing well what drugs might this person respond best to in order to achieve the best outcomes for them
1: well wow, that's a great break breakthrough uh, before we go to our next questions uh, the teacher Rob Mole has called us from Somerset uh, Somerset West private school in Cape Town and has a question for his class Rob, are they all listening now yes they are indeed, indeed. I'm deli- if I were to say hello to them would they hear me they would indeed hello guys
0: there you are, there comes the response.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Rob, go for it. Uh,
0: really, uh what we'd like to ask Chris, this question came up in our science class yesterday. We'd like to know plain and simply why do bats sleep upside down. <laughs> Hi Rob. And you, Hello, Chris. is your surname really Mole, M O L E? M O Double L. Oh, I think I'm oh, not okay. of the underground I variety, no. Because you've got one kind of mammal to another kind of mammal, but there we <laughs> um, there you go. you know that know, there's a disease which bats are very, very scared of catching. Do you know what it is? Rob, are you Diarrhea. Yeah, i here.
1: Diarrhea. Yeah. Okay. okay. Diarrhea. <laughs> yeah.
0: okay. Uh, so you, you have to hope they don't get that. Um... <laughs> But actually, I, I don't know why bats sleep upside down. I think it's probably more a consequence of the of the stability thing, because they have uh, obviously little hooked feet, because their hands are in their wings, and so they have little hooked hooked um, feet, which enables them to grab onto something. And I suspect it's probably so that they. Because of, for reasons of stability, they can confold comf- themselves up in a most compact way and hang on, um, dangling the way they do. But I don't actually know if there's another physiological reason. Not all bats hang upside down. Some squeeze themselves into little crevices. Um, I've also seen bats actually the right way up, clinging onto doors and things, um, because they've, they've been looking for somewhere to roost. So I don't think it's obligatory for all bats to do that. But many bats do it because they, they hang to things that they can get hold of. In other words, a branch or something with their feet, which are obviously pointing, um, for their their body downwards and so when they're hanging on their body is pointing downwards I think that's probably the reason but I will go away and have a look and see if there are any other physiological reasons why bats should want to hang the wrong way up so to speak
1: okay and Rob when when there's more information or if there's more information we'll definitely make a point of sending it to you and the class okay Thank you very much, indeed. Thank, Thank you, thanks you for so much. Thank you. That's Rob Mole, who is a teacher at Somerset West Private School. And if there are any more questions, uh, please keep them coming. We love it that uh, these young minds are so curious. Rob Mole, I made my mist- uh, mistake earlier and called him Mole. Let's go to Marcel in Durban. Hi there. Hi, really. Good morning to both of you. Mm. Can you tell me when we we are now pumping millions and millions and millions of gallons of oil out of the ground? What takes the place of that oil? When you consider the desert regions, there's no water to take the place. What is going to happen when we've pumped all this oil out? Are we just going to implode like a prick balloon? Okay, well, I think we've <laughs> had this question before, but <clears throat> it would be nice to
0: revisit What it. a wonderful thought. Hello, Marcel. Um, the answer is that the oil is in rock, which is porous, It's not in a giant cavity, because we tend to think of, of oil reserves underground as being like a giant bubble, and then we sort of suck out the oil, and this leaves a void. In fact, the oil is in amongst lots of other bits of rock, and you have little interconnections between those holes in the rock. So if you looked at the rock side on, you might see something resembling a piece of sponge. And so as you draw the oil out, and actually the oil is under very high pressure, so very often it pushes itself out, at least initially, and that means that you will leave a bit of space... But then the oil companies, uh, in order to displace the oil which is left behind, start to pump in mud and other chemicals, like water-based chemicals, to push the oil upwards. And so as a result, you don't, you don't end up with a space underground. A, there's lots of rock there anyway. And B, it ends up filled with another fluid usually a water-based one, which displaces the oil out. So there's always something under there. And the fraction of the ground, which is oil anyway, is so tiny relative to the huge sheer magnitude of the rock that it really doesn't make a huge amount of difference in the grand scheme of things. Mm. exactly the same for coal.
1: Okay, does that answer your question, myself? It does, thank you. Thank you very much, thank you. Let's go to Costa in Santon. Hi. Hello. Mm. Uh, For Chris, the question. Why do uh, we find that all the planets that revolve around
0: stars, in our case and others, they all revolve around the the, the sun's or the star's equator? Why aren't there any revolutions like an electron does around a, a nucleus, or possible, uh, you know, movements around around the centre? Hi, Costa. Um, Very good question, and the reason why the planets all form a horizontal plane around the sun is for reasons of conservation of angular momentum and the way in which um, a solar system like our own forms. So when we first, if we wound the clock back four and a half billion years or so, maybe five billion years, a huge ball of gas we think was buffeted by probably an explosion or the death knell of of another nearby star and this caused the gas to begin to collapse in on itself and it formed a proto um, a, stel- a sort of stellar nebula and that then began to collapsing on itself under gravity squeezing itself tighter and tighter and that's what ignited the sun and around the margins of this uh, solar sort of kindling effect going on in the middle was a lot of dust and other gas which slowly began to collapse together and because you will under gravity pull things close and close together the most energetically favorable configuration is if things then form a, a flat disk um, a protoplanetary disk, as it's known. And out of that proto- protoplanetary disk, I suppose resembling the rings of Saturn, really, other bigger particles would have again begun to, uh, accrete or assemble together again under the influence of gravity. And you build initially small rocks and pebbles, and they then build bigger rocks and pebbles, and eventually they build planets. And that's why they all line up, because you form this disk around the girth of the star, and out of that disk of material, you assemble the planets.
1: Okay, thank you very much, uh, Costa and Santon. Now, here's something that I'm very fascinated about, Chris. Very often we return to this, that mankind uh, comes from Africa. This was the genesis of mankind. But now I understand that there's another complexity, another layer, rather, uh, to this particular story. Tell me about that.
0: There's a beautiful study published in the journal Science this week. It's by a University of Auckland researcher. His name's Quentin Atkinson. I rung him up the other day to find out about this because it's so beautiful. Mm. Um, Obviously, we've for a long time had the power of genetics to interrogate where we think populations came from. And there's good evidence that the Garden of Eden, the cradle of human civilization, whatever, mankind's origins, lies in Africa somewhere. And then about 50 000 to 70,000 years ago, these early modern humans began an exodus from Africa and they populated the whole globe. And we can follow where they went with various techniques genetically. But now, what Quentin Atkinson has done is said, well, can we do it linguistically as well? So he's analyzed 504 different languages from mm. around the world, and specifically things called phonemes, which are the sounds that are used to make words. And as you go away from Africa, you find that the numbers of phonemes in the languages drops. And it drops in direct proportion to the migratory routes that we think the early populations would have taken because, in general, the smaller a population is, the fewer of these phonemes there are in the vocabulary, in the circulation of a language. And so it looks like you can now wind the clock back in terms not just of genetics but also of linguistics Mm. to where we all came from, and you can see that people probably had language in Africa and then they left Africa and they took their language with them all over the world. And this is really important because this could be the catalyst that actually helped people to leave Africa in the first place. Why was there this mass exodus at, at this time point 50 70,000 years ago or so yet early modern humans have been around for much longer than that? Why did they suddenly leave? And the fact that we've got this evidence linguistically now that they seem to have to have this modern language and language before they could exit the continent maybe suggests that that was the catalyst that help to propel people on their worldwide migration.
1: You're confirming again, uh, Chris, you know, I'm always fascinated by this subject, the the advantages that uh, language confers uh, to us as mankind, uh, the way we're able to cooperate with each other, to coordinate, uh, to communicate. It's it's just wonderful.
0: Exactly right.
1: Let's take a break. And uh, Sean and Mura, I'm going to chat to you in a moment.
0: The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby.
1: And we're taking your calls for The Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567 and your SMS's as well. Oh, I didn't give the other number. Uh, 021-446-0567 and 11 883 Let's go to Sean in Lansdowne. Hi there, Sean. Hi, Reedy. Um, i just like to know, Goosebumps. How did it form and how, when you're stimulated by a conversation, they, they, they just arrive. Yes. Oh, I love your question. Goosebumps. Yes, Chris. Why?
0: Hello, Sean. Um, the reason that we have this interesting phenomenon is because we're less hairy than we used to have, or less hairy than we used to be from an evolutionary perspective. Because if you look at each goose pimple, you'll see that at its tip is a hair. And what is happening is that you have a tiny muscle in the skin. These are piloerector muscles. And they are connected or anchored to the root of that hair. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so when something alarms you or makes you get excited for some reason or when you get cold, the muscle contracts to lift up the hair. Now if you're a big hairy animal, then this will be very advantageous because if you lift up the hair then you trap more air against your body and this reduces wind chill or in other words thermal loss to the environment helping you to keep warm. The other advantage, and this is why when you get excited or scared it also happens, is that if you're a little animal and there's a bigger animal coming to eat you, if you make your hair stand on end, you now look much much bigger and if you look bigger you're potentially a bit scarier to the other animal that wants to eat you so it might back down and go away so it's a vestige of our evolutionary origin when we're a lot hairier and we still do it today and it's a useful visual signal but it's not much use to us from a thermal point of view or from scaring people off
1: mm, okay thank you for asking that question sean i really love it let's go to is it uh, charles in fish hi. yes
0: hi mm. reading hi Chris. Well,
1: can you explain the near-death phenomenon? If a person's under anesthetic and operation and something goes wrong, the heart stops, and they get it going again, when the person recovers and the club is still wherever, he says, I actually could see, almost as if I was looking from the ceiling. Yes.
0: I see the surgeons there. It's a really tough one, this, Charles, and the jury's out. Um, people have done various experiments, and they've done things like conceal um, a sign in an operating theatre above the lighting so that someone would never know it were normally there, and then they've asked patients who've been in this position whether or not they could read what was on this sign. That was one experiment that was done, and um, I'm not clear about whether there's any compelling evidence that people give consistent histories or not. Um, people do definitely respond Report interesting experiences. Um, they're certainly real for that person in the sense that they have had something happen to them, and they've then had this series of experiences. Um, I will never forget when I was a, um, a first when I was first working as a junior doctor. I saw this old lady, um, and she said to me, um, "Oh, there was a terrible kerfuffle in the night. There were all these people running around, all these trolleys all around here. You know, I couldn't get any sleep at all." And we asked the nurse, and she said, "No, it's been a very quiet night. Nothing has gone wrong in the ward." And then half an hour later that lady had a cardiac arrest and had to get the arrest team in to try and resuscitate her um and you think oh that's that sounds a little bit scary but then on the other hand it could be coincidence because someone who is getting towards the end of their life is likely to have one or two metabolic disturbances they may not have enough oxygen getting to their brain they may be on various medications and all these things can make us a bit confused and possibly see things that aren't there and so on so i think it's a really hard thing to do it's really hard to get a clear scientific assessment of what's going on i suspect that when people have a problem like a cardiac arrest or they get anoxia in other words not enough oxygen getting into the brain i think that under those circumstances it probably triggers off lots of uh, brain activity which you wouldn't normally have and in the same way that dreaming makes you see things and experience things that don't really happen, I suspect that that's a similar sort of phenomenon to what people are reporting when they've gone through these experiences and then lived and been able to give a history of them.
1: All I know is that I'm into a very good sleep immediately and after coming off um, the anesthetic. After waking up, I'm still feeling nice and groggy and I don't want to know anything about the world I'm in. It just feels so divine. Uh, here's an SMS from Rashad. Uh, I don't know if I can... Uh, I'll just spell out um, this condition for you, Chris. It says, my, do- my daughter suffers from cold eticaria or etisaria. E-T-I-C-A-R-I-A. What causes it and what can we cure it how can we cure it
0: um yeah urticaria urticaria is a histamine driven reaction you have in your in your skin cells called mast cells and inside those mast cells are little tiny packets of histamine histamine is an inflammatory chemical and if you get things like hay fever allergic rhinitis and asthma, then you know its effects. It makes your skin itchy, it can make it swell up because it makes blood vessels open up and become leaky, so proteins come out of the blood vessels and make the tissue become swollen it makes your eyes itchy, it can make you sneeze, it can make you feel very uncomfortable, and if you want to offset that effect, you take something called an antihistamine, which blocks the action of this inflammatory chemical. It's actually there to protect you, to defend your tissues against parasites coming in and things like that. If, If something comes into the skin that shouldn't be there, this histamine comes out it alerts the immune system that it needs to react but when you're reacting against something which you shouldn't react against like an allergic condition then it's uncomfortable now cold urticaria is where this reaction is provoked by exposure to cold things or it can occasionally also happen with hot things as well. And what I think happens with this is that you have a population of nerve cells which signal cold in your skin. That's how you pick up thermal challenge. When you touch something cold, there is a population of nerve cells that have uh, receptors or they have channels on the surface of the nerve cell that get active when the cell is exposed to the cold. Those nerve cells trigger your spinal cord saying it's cold, but they also give branches to mast cells, these cells that have histamine in them, in the skin. And so that can activate the mast cells. So when the cold nerve fibre goes off, saying it's very cold here, it also triggers off some of these mast cells and can make them discharge their histamine and can make skin reactions and things. I think that's probably what's going on and with someone who's got this, perhaps they have cells which are a bit too active or uh, are... Overstimulating the mast cells in some way. Um, I've got a friend who's dermatologist, so I'll mm-hmm. actually ask them if there's been any more developments in this.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Let's go to Moira in Parktown. Hi there, Moira. Hello, my eight year old sister would like to ask why is it that an ice cube is sort of translucent on the outside but white in the core? Okay.
0: Hello, Moira. Uh, If you made a perfect ice crystal, then you'd be able to see through it without a problem. The reason that the ice looks white in the middle is because there's either some fracturing or it didn't freeze in one go and you've got lots of little ice crystals in the centre. Because the reason that it looks white is the same reason that snow looks white or milk in water looks white. It's whenever you get lots of little particles or surfaces that can reflect and refract light going in, then you get back more light... Out towards you than goes through and it makes it look white whereas if you have something which is a nice perfect crystal with no surfaces inside to bend or reflect the light back at you then it looks translucent
1: okay short and sweet please encourage your children to phone in with their questions and so on because uh chris i've just found that children ask the most amazing amazing questions with all their innocence i mean those brains are working over time would you agree
0: I certainly would. I've got some. Um, while we were having some uh, t- downtime just now, I had a look in my zoology book at bats. So I have an update for Rob and his class uh, oh, and in the south of the country. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, well, I have this wonderful book. Um, oh. <clears throat> and the two answers they suggest is that there's one, a takeoff advantage. Bats' wings, unlike birds' wings, are too weak for them to be able to take off from a standing start from the ground. <laughs> so instead, what they do by dangling upside down, they can drop away, immediately gaining some velocity, unfold their wings and then their wings can work and make them fly and the other possibility or the other thing is that they have a unique adaptation in their legs so that they can cling on upside down without having to expend any energy because the talons of their feet uh, wrap around a surface and the body weight stretches the tendon attached to those talons making them curve round so just by dangling upside down they effectively close their claws around the thing they want to hang on to. So that's that's an adaptation which has come along secondary to having evolved to sleep upside down but i think the primary driver is the small wing scale so that they can't take off from a standing position they have to drop to get airborne and then move and it also probably gives them an advantage from predators because if something comes towards them they can drop very quickly the predator probably won't expect that they'll also be going quite fast quite quickly so they can then fly away
1: absolutely great we'll send that to the class as a podcast thank you very much chris have a lovely weekend
0: pleasure have a great one see you soon reedy bye